Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And I come to you tonight with some sad news. Probably you've already heard it, but Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the United States Supreme Court has died this evening. And unfortunately, not only was she a legendary historic jurist that regardless of whether you agreed with her or not was very important to deciding a number of critical issues facing the country, the death leaves a vacancy in the Supreme Court at a tumultuous time for the country. You don't need me to tell you that. With just about 60 days until the next presidential election, we've got a lot to talk about in respect of what this is all going to look like, what powers various folks have, what powers they are threatening, uh, because unfortunately, even 2020, we don't get a moment to breathe uh, and just reflect, really, uh, on the passing of somebody as important and of stature like a Justice Ginsburg. But before we get into all of that nitty-gritty, which so many of you have asked me to comment on, I want to talk a little bit about her and what I really loved about what she did even though in any number of instances, if I had virtual legality on at the time, you would have found me disagreeing with her. And let's talk about that just a little bit. But before we get into it, this was the press release that the Supreme Court wound up putting out. Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died this evening, surrounded by her family at her home in Washington, D.C., due to complications of metastatic pancreas cancer. She was 87 years old. Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. said of Justice Ginsburg, Our nation has lost a jurist of historic stature. We at the Supreme Court have lost a cherished colleague. Today we mourn, but with confidence that future generations will remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg as we knew her, a tireless and resolute champion of justice. And in fact, if you don't know what Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been all about, she has been an icon for many on what is known as the liberal wing of the Supreme Court. Sometimes those names don't make a lot of sense. A lot of Supreme Court decisions are made in outside the 5-4 liberal conservative spectrum. But she took that over, as Wikipedia describes, on the retirement of Justice John Paul Stevens and then had any number of impacts on very important cases throughout the United States. She talked about abortion, saying the basic thing is that the government has no business making that choice for a woman. She helped decide the very important case of United States versus Virginia in the mid-1990s in which she established that the Virginia Military Institute could not use gender to deny women the opportunity to attend that school with its unique educational methods and emphasized that the government must show an exceedingly persuasive justification to use a classification based on sex. She also helped change laws. This is one of those things that you've probably heard me talk about in virtual legality, not just with respect to Justice Ginsburg, but that very often judges and justices will say, we are bound by this law that we have in front of us, maybe even by the Constitution, but somebody should change it, and we are not the legislature. So in the case of equal pay under Ledbetter versus Goodyear, she advocated that there be a change in legislation. As part of her dissent, as Wikipedia puts it, Ginsburg called on Congress to amend Title VII to undo the court's decision with legislation. She also had an impact on search and seizure cases. And in one of those areas where I just generally disagree with her jurisprudence, she advocated to have international law help shape United States norms. As Wikipedia says, she advocated for the use of that foreign law and norms to shape U.S. law, in her opinions. 
And in fact, in a case where I was actually at this school when it was happening, in her concurring opinion in Grutter v. Bollinger, a decision upholding Michigan Law School's affirmative action admissions policy, Ginsburg noted that there was an accord between the notion that affirmative action admissions policies would have an end point, that that decision was made on the notion that affirmative action in this manner at law schools and anywhere else wouldn't have to last forever, assuming that discrimination would somehow at some point be beaten, she said that that accorded with the notion of international treaties that were designed to combat racial and gender-based discrimination that also had sunsetting or end points, even though the court outside of the legislature couldn't set that kind of terminology in that particular case. That is only a handful of the things that she really wound up talking about during her long stint on the Supreme Court. She also became very famous for dissenting. And one of the things I will say about her is that when she wrote, she was one of my favorite jurists to read. I loved reading Ginsburg. I loved reading Scalia. Right now, I love reading Kagan because they are so incisive. They are so insightful. And you hear me say Scalia and Ginsburg, they were directly opposite on so, so many cases. But as a lawyer, as someone that loves this kind of stuff, as someone interested in civics in the United States, if you explain your position and you show me how you got there, even if I disagree at the end of the day, I still respect you for it. And there is no point in anything that Ginsburg ever wrote that I didn't respect how she got there, even if I disagreed with some of the premises that she put up. She was an insightful, incisive jurist in a way that didn't raise my ire, that didn't just blow any way the wind was going to pick the decision that they wanted to make and then justify it later based on whatever logic sprang into his head at the time. There's nothing I hate more than that kind of real politic jurisprudence that doesn't look at the language, that changes no matter what you might think they are thinking based on the politics of the day. That will always get my ire, and Justice Ginsburg could never be accused of that. Oh, wait. How did this, how did this photo get up there? I, I apologize. I don't, know, I don't know how this photo got up there. It was that insightfulness, that incisiveness that made Justice Ginsburg into an icon. You've got a picture here of a book called Notorious RBG. I can tell you a story where we were doing a white elephant Christmas at a firm in which I am of counsel, and I received this book, Notorious RBG, at that white elephant party, and it was flipped around like seven or eight times among people because they wanted to read the book because she was a kind of hero of legal thought to so many of these lawyers, these high-priced, very intelligent, very smart people with very good ideas of their own wanted to have this book, wanted to check it out, and this persisted outside of the law. This persisted really outside of business and the United States to some extent. Notorious RBG became a thing. And yeah, as a lawyer, I don't necessarily love kind of a public relations kind of look at justices, but I can't deny the effect that she had on people's lives. You don't see a Scalia poster. You don't see... Chief Justice Roberts hanging out above somebody's bed, I, I don't think. And, and if that is you and you're watching this video, do, just don't share with me. I accept a lot of comments, but don't tell me you've got Chief Justice Roberts above your bed. And not only that, she was perhaps the progenitor of reasonable minds can differ, right? That's a phrase we use so, so often here in virtual legality. And she lived it. 
One of the most famous, one of the most heartening stories that I have always taken from the Supreme Court is that Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia, who, if you don't know, could not be more opposite. If you're just ensconced in the current trials and tribulations of the day, imagine this is Joe Biden and Donald Trump, just for purposes of the hypothetical. And they were best friends, even though they argued about everything under the law. As NPR puts it here, like many pals, Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have a pretty good argument now and then, but not let it affect their close friendship. During their time together on the United States Supreme Court, Justice Scalia, a staunch conservative, and Justice Ginsburg, a staunch liberal, rarely found themselves on the same side of controversial issues. But in an era when political divisions drive many in Washington apart on a personal level, their disagreements remained intellectual. Justice Ginsburg, hero of the left, a staunch liberal, did not believe in one of the precepts of what we see so often in places like Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere that you might traverse on the internet today. The personal was not political. The political was not personal. We can have the intellectual debate, and I can still believe you're a human being that wants to better the United States, wants to follow the Constitution, and wants to follow the law, and just sees it differently than me. Reasonable minds, reasonable minds can differ. We were best buddies, Ginsburg wrote after Scalia died on Saturday. They like to fight things out in good spirit, in fair spirit, not the way we see debates these days on television, NPR's Nina Totenberg recalled on the NPR Politics podcast. And Ginsburg admitted once that Scalia made her better. And we're going to go into this story a little bit, but that is such an important notion, right? You might not have ever agreed with anything that Justice Ginsburg said in her life, or maybe you never agreed with anything that Justice Scalia said in his life. The point of reasonable minds can differ, the point of virtual legality, the point of having conversations with folks that don't necessarily agree with you entirely is because that does help us as people, as intellectuals, as lawyers, sure, but just as folks out there in the United States. As this story goes, one night last year, when this story was made, when the two justices appeared on stage for an interview together in Washington, D.C., Ginsburg talked about a time when Scalia showed her his dissenting opinion in a case before she had finished the majority opinion. I took this dissent, this very spicy dissent, and it absolutely ruined my weekend, Ginsburg said, and she made some tweaks to her own argument. One of the problems we have right now is echo chambers, right? I've said in this space, I will say it again, I follow Fox and Vox. I want to know both sides. I want to know who's arguing what. I want to know those things, not because I want to beat anybody in a Twitter debate, but because both sides have good ideas and both sides have bad ideas. And you're never going to figure out which is which if you only listen to one. I took this dissent and it absolutely ruined my weekend and I made tweaks to my own argument. There were a lot of laughs. They really did a lot of jokes at each other's expense and also to compliment each other. Justice Scalia, Justice Ginsburg, two of the most popular people in the country, two of the most powerful people in the country would nevertheless put that aside to go drink wine and eat good food and go to the opera together because for them, the personal wasn't political and the political wasn't personal. And I really do think, and this might be one of the few kind of political statements you ever hear from me on virtual legality, that kind of philosophy is helping to hurt the United States fabric. 
the way in which we interact with each other, the othering of someone else who also, in good faith, believes that what they want will help the country just as sure as you do, even if you are in direct opposition. Now, with that all said, I think Justice Ginsburg should be taken as a symbol of what we can achieve with that by intellectualizing our differences, not othering each other, continuing to have those human connections, even with people that disagree with us. And she is deserving of all the praise she is getting tonight, all of the incisiveness, all of the insightfulness she brought to her opinions, that notoriety, that is all deserved. And may she rest in peace. Unfortunately, 2020 doesn't leave the story there. That is not the end of anything in 2020. Because Article 2, Section 2 of the United States Constitution, as I am sure you already know, tells the president that he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. Now, it's middle of September 2020, folks, and you and I both know that there is a divisive election coming. There's an election the likes of which we might not have ever seen and might not ever see again with multitudes of people voting by mail, with a count that is likely to take weeks, if not a month or more, to figure out who the president of the United States is, with the knives out and people going at each other in all walks of life on very important questions, yes. But now we are looking at a situation in which not only did Justice Ginsburg die, but she was also a pivotal middle piece of the Supreme Court from a political perspective and giving President Trump the ability to fill that seat, which he no doubt undoubtedly has the power to do under the Constitution right now as it stands, if he gets that advice and consent of the Senate, is going to divide a lot of folks. One of the reasons it's going to divide those folks so much is because of what happened during the last go around. Now, this is a Wikipedia entry. I want to give a word of warning here. I'm using Wikipedia essentially for expediency. I don't recommend using Wikipedia on issues of significant political discord. So we're going to use this. We're going to look at these sentences. We're going to talk about this situation. I would recommend taking everything that is remotely editorialized with a grain of salt. Go look at the research yourself. I'll add color as we go along. But I do not recommend using Wikipedia for things that are outside of just words that you can verify. That being said, a lot of the facts here are important, and they represent exactly what the Republican Senate is looking at and what the Democrat opposition is also looking at, and that's going to be important as well. On February 13th, 2016, so that's February, Associate Justice Antonin Scalia died unexpectedly. The vacancy on the court created by Scalia's death came during a U.S. presidential election year. At the time of Scalia's death, the incumbent president was Barack Obama, a member of the Democratic Party, while the Republican Party held a 54-46 seat majority in the Senate. So this is not identical to what we are looking at right now. President Obama was a lame duck, wasn't going to be reelected in 2016. It was between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And also the opposition party held the Senate. Now, as you probably already know, if you're watching this video and you're attuned to these kinds of things, because 2016 isn't that long ago, the justice that Barack Obama would appoint to this seat, Merrick Garland, would never get voted on by the Senate at all. 
And the real politic of that situation, which I know is a phrase that I use a lot in this space, but it is accurate here. The actual underlying reasoning for that is because the Senate had control by the Republicans. and The Republicans didn't want to give that seat to the Democratic president. And so they came up with a reason. Scalia's election year death triggered a protracted political battle that did not end until 2017 after a new president had been inaugurated. The Senate's Republican leadership was quick to assert that the vacancy should not be filled until after the 2016 presidential election. They cited a 1992 speech by then-Senator Joe Biden, in which Biden argued that President Bush should wait until after the election to appoint a replacement if a Supreme Court seat became vacant during the summer, or should appoint a moderate acceptable to the then-Democratic Senate as a president. Biden responded that his position was and remained that the president and Congress should work together to overcome partisan differences regarding judicial nominations, because Biden was, of course, a part of the Obama administration and wanted Merrick Garland to be voted on. Democrats also countered that the U.S. Constitution obliged the president to nominate and obliged the Senate to give its advice and consent in a timely manner. Republicans argued in response that the Senate was fulfilling its obligation of advice and consent by saying that the next president should make the appointment. There were, however, 11 months left to President Obama's term at the time of Scalia's death, and the Democrats argued that no precedent existed for such a lengthy delay and that previous presidents had nominated individuals in election years. So a couple of things to note here, right? The Republicans said that 11 months was not enough, that the American people should get the chance to vote on the president that would appoint this seat. And they held for 11 months until President Obama's term was over and gave that nomination to Donald Trump. We are not looking at 11 months. We're not even looking, I don't think, at three months, maybe a little bit more than three months to January 20 or so. And they are going to take a different tact. Now, I say that because we don't make predictions in this space, but we do know that both the presidency and the Senate, the two bodies in our United States government that are necessary to place someone on the Supreme Court, are, unlike in this case, controlled by the same party, the Republican Party. So it is no surprise when we look at things like uh, an interview with the Senate Majority Leader McConnell that was put forth in Vox that says, well, he'd hold SCOTUS hearings in an election year in a reversal of 2016. If a Supreme Court seat opened early next year, one would think that the Biden rule would again be in effect. But during a Chamber of Commerce event in Paducah, Kentucky on Tuesday, McConnell said it won't. Should a Supreme Court justice die next year, what will your position be on filling that spot? An attendee asked. Oh, we'd fill it, McConnell replied with a smile. And indeed, if you're following the news this evening, he has backed that up in force. From Fox News, McConnell Trump's Supreme Court nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said unequivocally Friday night that President Trump's Supreme Court nominee to fill the vacancy of late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. He says, in the last midterm election before Justice Scalia's death in 2016, Americans elected a Republican Senate majority because we pledged to check and balance the last days of a lame duck's president's second term. We kept our promise. Since the 1880s, no Senate has confirmed an opposite party's president, Supreme Court nominee in a presidential election year. So understand what McConnell is trying to articulate here is that not as Wikipedia says, it's just we don't vote on these things in election years. McConnell is trying to establish that what he was saying is that 
Effectively, elections have consequences and that the people voted in a Republican Senate in order to check a Democratic president. And we feel that we are using that power in the way that the American public has given it to us. Now, to the extent that you're already on the side of the Republicans, that probably makes some sense to you. But it is going to be a problem here in 2020 because even on an expedited basis, a one-month, two-month, or three-month approval process for whoever President Trump winds up appointing to this spot is going to be problematic for a lot of people. McConnell continued by saying, by contrast, Americans reelected our majority in 2016 and expanded it in 2018 because we pledged to work with President Trump and support his agenda, particularly his outstanding appointments to the federal judiciary. Said another way, he says, look, the people voted us in to check Obama and they expanded their vote for us now to help Trump. And again, from a real politics standpoint, maybe this doesn't look like hypocrisy, but for most of the people on earth, Having this happen to Merrick Garland at the end of Obama's term, having Ruth Bader Ginsburg die right now, and having Mitch McConnell come out and say this is going to result in a lot, a lot of anger and a lot of divisiveness across the country. And it could be even worse than just anger and divisiveness. As we look at NBC News, Democrats warn GOP, the Republican Party, don't fill a Supreme Court vacancy in 2020 or we will retaliate. Democrats are warning Republicans not to fill a possible Supreme Court vacancy this year after denying President Barack Obama the chance in 2016, saying it would embolden a push on the left to add seats to the court whenever they regained power. We knew basically they were lying in 2016 when they said, oh, we can't do this because it's an election year. We knew they didn't want to do it because it was President Obama. Senator Tim Kaine said in an interview, if they show that they are unwilling to respect precedent, the rule that they set in 2016, rules and history, then they can't feign surprise when others talk about using a statutory option that we have that's fully constitutional in our availability. I don't want to do that. But if they act in such a way, they may push it to an inevitability. So they need to be careful about that. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the size of the Supreme Court. Now, you might think, if you haven't recently read the United States Constitution or you've just never really thought about it, that perhaps an institution as important as the United States Supreme Court would have within that Constitution some parameters for what size it should be. But in fact, you would be wrong. In fact, the size of the Supreme Court is set by law, which means that to change it, you basically just need a vote of the House, a vote of the Senate, approval of the president and various veto options and overrides as well. And if you get those things, you can change the size. And if you change the size, if you take nine to 18, if you can get that done and you can give President Biden nine more justices of his own, well, that's gonna change the political look of the Supreme Court. And that's the threat right now. As Wikipedia says, and I do trust them to actually read acts be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that the Supreme Court of the United States shall hereafter consist of the Chief Justice of the United States and eight associate justices, any six of whom shall constitute a quorum. And for the purposes of this act, there shall be appointed an additional associate justice of said court. Now that would be taken down back to nine. There's a whole 10 versus nine thing that happened here. But suffice it to say, the statute appoints the actual size of the court and that means that by statute, that size can be changed. 
And that's what the Democrats are threatening. Now, if you don't know your history on this, this isn't the first time that Democratic powers have threatened to, quote unquote, pack the court with additional seats on that court in order to reform it. Famously, the switch in time that saved nine is the phrase originally equipped by humorist Cal Tinney, thanks Wikipedia, about what was perceived in 1937 as the sudden jurisprudential shift by Associate Justice Owen Roberts, Roberts is always shifting, of the United States Supreme Court in the 1937 case West Coast Hotel Company versus Parrish. Conventional historical accounts and those accounts that will be told to you in law school by your constitutional law professors portrayed the court's majority opinion as a strategic political move to protect the court's integrity and independence from President Franklin Roosevelt's court reform bill, also known as the court packing plan, which would have expanded the size of the bench up to 15 justices. Now, you might think if you are on the Democratic side, we talked about who's on the Republican side before, that this seems perfectly fair. And indeed, it might be. But one of the problems here, and admittedly, this has been a problem now for a number of years across various levels of the United States government and state governments, is the notion of norms, political concepts that are keeping a lot of the ship of government on the waves and not stranded ashore somewhere. It is those norms, those unwritten rules of baseball that have prevented things like this. And the problem is when you get rid of those norms, when you end things like judicial nomination filibuster powers, which is what happened, which is why in all likelihood Trump is going to be able to fill this seat and his appointment is going to be on the court before he loses his office, whether that's this year or in four years, that when you lose those norms, a lot of extra damage can happen. Because if you set the bench to 15 justices, if the Democrats pack the court, there is no reason that the Republicans can't pack it more in the future, that it can't be 24 justices, then 39, then 41, then 112. And unfortunately, that's the direction I see this going because there is no question in my mind when you have Mitch McConnell going out like this and in all honesty, the Republicans love him or hate him would be silly to not fill this seat from a political perspective. The constitution gives them the power, gives them the authority. They have the ability and apparently the temerity to do so that if that becomes a retaliation kind of concept, we are in a lot more trouble than we were before this day started. And, and I started this video, right, talking about Justice Ginsburg, talking about the fact that whether you agreed with her or disagreed with her, it was always clear where she was coming from. What I would say here is that we are looking at a divisive election. We were looking at that before today. It got significantly worse after this. So I would ask you to remember Justice Ginsburg, let her rest in peace be kind to people online, talk through your differences, hopefully find reasonable minds. And I'm not saying engage with those unreasonable minds. There are partisans on both sides that are going to seek to burn the place to the ground. You don't have to engage with those folks. But remember Justice Ginsburg, remember her friendship with Justice Scalia. Remember that we can have those bonds, that there are a lot of people that are trying to make things better and that just because McConnell and Tim Kaine and Nancy Pelosi and whomever else are going to be lobbing absolute firebombs at each other based on all this, that the actual United States people, the American people, 
we, we can get past all of this stuff, even as 2020 continues to knock us to the ground. Or as I said on Twitter, there's absolutely no question that an ugly year and ugly election season just got a hundred times uglier. Stay safe out there, everyone. Be kind. And remember that reasonable minds can, in fact, differ. Rest in peace, Justice Ginsburg. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I won't give any pitches here again. This wasn't a video that I really wanted to have to make in this circumstance or really at all. But if you caught this on YouTube, I really do appreciate you watching. Please share it around with anybody that you think might be interested. If you caught it in its podcast form, thank you again for listening. I really appreciate that as well. And I will catch you on the next, hopefully, a bit more lighthearted episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.